Hey everybody, you are listening to A Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy. I am your supposedly resident smart guy, Johnny Morrison, and with us as always is your very smart dumb guy, Christian Serge. You know, it's funny that you say that, and hi everybody. It's just that whenever I talk to people and they're like, Christian, you are not a Mm -hmm. dumb guy. I'm like, well, I do kind of look at subjects, I believe, kind of in a dumb way and sometimes insensitive. And whenever they talk about you, though, they go... Oh yeah, John, Johnny, he's he's a really smart guy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that if you listen to all the episodes, there's definitely enough moments where I am not the smart guy that you could, that it, somebody would be like pretty easy to be like, yeah, he's not that smart. He's not that smart. You listen to the animal episode, he's not that smart. <laughs> no, I had a listener come to me and say, hey, I really uh, would love to meet Johnny. I think that we would have lots to talk about. And he goes, I feel his pain. And I also really... Uh, kind of vibe. And he said much smarter words than me. So I'm going to use the word vibe. I kind of vibe with what he's saying. So that was a really good feedback. I uh, really appreciate um, that listener. Oh, yeah, me too. Well, everybody, each week for the next 23 minutes, that's always our target because if you want to know truly, it's because that is the average commute time that people have. And I don't know if that's uh, true now with COVID, but it certainly was pre-COVID BC. It's true. My commute time is like 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any traffic? Uh, sometimes, you know, I have two other people in the house or, well, I have one person and one cat in the house and sometimes I run into them and I have to wait for the bathroom and there's a traffic jam trying to get to the coffee. Yeah, I got it. Anyway, if, you, if you're just joining us, a welcome. The point of this show is that we're going to have conversation about culture, current events and politics from both the smart and dumb point of view. And hopefully you'll continue these conversations at home. Mm-hmm. Actually, before we start, I met with a listener over the weekend and she was actually quite upset about uh, my supposed cavalier attitude towards sex trafficking. Hmm. Hmm. And so I had to go back and listen to uh, the show. And I think that someone who listens to the show who feels very passionate about sex trafficking would Hmm. consider my uh, attitude as cavalier. And so number one, I am am sorry that uh, I came across as cavalier. That certainly wasn't my point. Sometimes, as this dumb perspective, I can look at things very simply. And so when I speak of something very simply, some people can think of that as cavalier, like you're not taking it serious enough. So I want everyone to know that I do not support sex trafficking, and it is a very serious issue. Uh, The point of the show, I think that one, for me, was, um, yes, the cavalier moment was if we decriminalized sex workers, not made it legal, but decriminalized sex workers, would it change the sex trafficking industry for good Mm. or bad? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that episode has sparked maybe the most amount of conversations, I think, so far in terms of people that I've listened to talk about it or people I've like asked how they enjoy the show or whatever. That's, I think, the episode that has had the most kind of responses because the conversation around sex trafficking, I think, is it's just a really tricky one. Yeah. Because it is, what you're saying is, right, like, I want to hold with the utmost seriousness and conviction that sex trafficking is real, it's problematic, it's destructive, yes, and that the people who are in it need to be protected. And at the same time, I want to have a conversation about are the ways in which we talk about sex trafficking, sexuality, the ways in which we make policies around sex trafficking, and even the ways in which, like some of the points that I was making, the evangelicals engage it, are those helpful to protecting the people in it? Which I think is the point that you were trying to make. Yes. And so if you are listening, uh, if you haven't left us a bad review and uh, completely hate us here, (laughs) we hope that you're listening and accept our apologies and know that 
Yeah, we take these subjects seriously and, and mm -hmm. uh, try to co uh, converse about them in a, a meaningful and empathetic way. Mm -hmm. we're, I think we're happy to be wrong and happy to um, own where we're wrong and happy to like rehab new conversations about like the things that have been revealed that have emerged from like people pushing back or asking questions or sending new articles or something. So yes, well, the first article I want to talk about, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I kind of want to talk about your article first, Johnny. I think it's better. Okay, great. I think I've been doing this recently, which is funny. I've been kind of leaning more and more into my status as the reverend on the show, picking articles that are conversations about religion. And this article comes from a social scientist named Michael Emerson. Michael Emerson, I think he's at the University of Illinois, University of Chicago. He's written a couple of books that have been really helpful. Um, but this article is not leaning into social science as much. He's writing about what happens when Christians primarily, and, and really specifically evangelicals, encounter things like racism, misogyny, that is not just a part of their churches, but is often built into the theological structures that we inhabit in terms of like where our theology came from, how we think about theology, that he uses one example to say it feels like it's kind of baked into the cake. And so what happens when we, people like us encounter it? And what he's writing about is that so many people abandon their faith because it feels like you can't decouple injustice, racism from evangelical Christianity. And the question that he's wrestling with is like, well, do we lose something when that happens? And what do we lose? And is there a way in which we can separate the lies and trauma of American Christianity from the Jesus story and even the church and hold on to what is precious and good and right? I, I didn't understand most of that. And I got to be honest, I like, I, I, <laughs> let me tell you what I heard. Okay. Uh, and boil it down for me. <laughs> what I heard was Christians are having a hard time separating their feelings about Jesus and the world we live in today as it applies to justice and all the, that finger pointing and hate that's going around. And mm -hmm. people are abandoning their faith because of this problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, two weeks ago, we, we were talking about how religion and religious mosques were actually, you know, getting bigger and there was a more resurgence of religion. So this feels like mm -hmm. a very opposite article to that. Oh, that's a good point. So what most social research shows us is that religion in the United States amongst uh, specifically white people is dying. Hmm. But religion in the United States is not dying in that immigrant churches are thriving, refugee churches are thriving, and then religion in the rest of the world is growing. But it is true that religion amongst Western white folks is on the decline. Okay. So this is where his article is kind of aimed at for the most part. So in the United States, Western religion, white people, religion is dying. Mm -hmm. People are leaving their faith. Am I, am I hearing you right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and he's focusing specifically on yeah, evangelical Christianity and the way in which folks who, exactly what you said, like they see injustice and they're like, can we be followers of Jesus when it feels like the evangelical church in America is actually responsible for so much of the injustice that we're witnessing or, or are complicit with so much of the injustice? Here's See, a, one of the reasons I like this this article is because, like, well, I'm, I mean, I'm a pastor of a church, and you're also a Christian, and so I thought it'd be interesting to have this conversation with you, you know, as you work through, since I am, I am like a religious professional, like I maybe have, have biases, and so I wanted, I kind of wanted to ask you the question, which is like, how do you separate out those two things? Like, here's the Jesus story that I love, this church that I'm a part of, and yet I'm witnessing so much injustice that's connected to the same faith. Like, how do you process that? 
That's a great question. It reminds me of experience yesterday. I walk in the house and my wife is a very organized and loyal and calm and collective and communicative person, uh, you know, uh, one of which I have never met before her equal. And uh, she's going to like me for saying that, but uh, uh-huh. it's actually- <laughs> It's true though. It is very true if you know her. And I, it's, she's not known for fits of rage or anger and has just tremendous empathy and is always seeing the other side and all sides and can see pretty much the other side on most topics. But there was uh, an article about the death penalty and pro-life and she just lit up. She was like mm. saying, I can see where Christians can be pro-life, but if you're pro-life, how can you support the death penalty? There's no answer in Jesus for the death penalty. They can rot in prison for the rest of their life. There's no reason that we should take justice in our own hands. Jesus doesn't teach that. And so it, it, it made me think about when people use the Bible and verses against or as a fight against this injustice or as mm-hmm. a reason, more as a reason for this injustice, a reason for their stance. I'm going to take this unempathetic stance because the Bible gives me that justice. Mm-hmm. And I think that could be the root of this problem because once mm. you start doing that, you kind of go down this trail of, I am right, I am this, and you become the most important thing. And the message of the Bible, according to me, according to Christian, is you're not that important. Mm. That God thinks you're that important, and why would you? Why would you be that important? Mm. So I don't know if that answers your question or answer that you're asking me, but I think that's maybe at the core of this issue. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. There's actually a theologian who talks about um, houses of authority, and this, this is what she's this is what she's describing in this is that like, are we build our faith on these houses of authority, which is always these like references to scripture in a way that upholds our own power as opposed to deconstructs power. And it becomes like this statement is based upon this statement is based upon this statement. And so you're like, whoa, where are we? Um, but the question I now I want to ask you a second question kind of coming out of that, which is like, how do you yourself figure out what it is that like Jesus is doing and what it is that you're connected to and what it is that gives life to you and your faith in light of all of that crap that you just named? Wow. That is a good question. Are you at, you're asking me like a reverent question. You're asking me like a deep, heartfelt, uh, what does Jesus mean in your life? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I am. I, I am asking that. I think like, how do you hold on to your faith, you know, despite it's, so much of what you see? You know, it's really hard. It's hard uh, to not use Philippians or Ephesians or all these New Testament uh, scriptures that say, hey, you know, don't be fear-based and have faith in God. Mm. And so just go out there and don't wear a mask and, and don't listen to the government. Like those are all very challenging things to not use in the Bible and to actually mm. uh, dive deeper into what really the message is that Jesus was trying to tell us and how we should feel and how we should act. So I don't know. It's really difficult. I do know that. And it, it, mm-hmm. I find myself feeling very privileged when I find a scripture that makes me feel justified to mm. do what I want to do. Mm. And I have to really step back and think, all right, is this what doing what I want to do? Or is this like the bumper sticker, yeah. what would Jesus do? <laughs> totally. <laughs> that is totally the truth. This, is, this has been the challenge, I think, of my life. Uh, this, maybe that's one of the reasons I resonated with this article is like, 
when I was 18, I really began to wrestle with my faith. Not because I wanted to reject my faith, but because things there was three issues that really challenged me. Racism in the church, poverty, and violence. Those are the three that, like, when I turned 18, the Iraq War was, like, fully going. Um, and the violence of that, the connection of evangelicalism to, like, GOP politics and the racism that I was beginning to learn about disrupted how I thought about my faith in huge ways. And I feel like I had a decision to make, which was like, what do I do with these three massive things and the faith that I hold on to? And I, that's like, that's why I went to school. That's why I went to school again. That's why I went to school again. Cause I was like, I need better tools to like sort out where, how these things engage with one another because I don't know that I always feel like I'm getting them from like the sources that are popular in you know American Christianity. I think like from that's it was so challenging that I had to keep going to school. But I think here's what I mean, I'll, I'll try to keep this short. But I think what I'm what I'm learning is is what does it look like to hold on and make sense of my faith? There's there's a few things that I need. One, I need humans. Like I need my faith to be really deeply embodied in community. Right. I need to do it with you. And I need mm. your your understanding of faith to shape mine and to be mutually in dialogue with one another. How does that make you feel? How does being in relationship with you make me feel? Um, <laughs> awkward. <laughs> no. Just awkward. And <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I know you. And I know that you're a very smart guy. You're very intellectual. Um, you are uh, mm. someone that people want to be around. And I wouldn't call you a, a extra extrovert, right? Like, no. Uh, and so... Knowing that you've come to the realization that you need mm-hmm. to be around people, uh huh, is that a little jolting? Um, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it is. It, I think yes. Like I think I want in an ideal universe for my faith to be something that I do in my head by myself, right? Like I think that would be a, like it's like a white tower situation. I can see the appeal to the tower. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but it just it doesn't like faith that is isolated and alone is a faith that metastasizes and turns into a parasite. Hmm. It's destructive. It doesn't help. It becomes, it's what you named. It becomes about me and how important I am and how I see the world. And all of a sudden, all my faith is seen through the lens of Johnny, which is a terrible lens to see faith through. (laughs) (laughs) So it needs to be in dialogue with you and with others. And then I think it needs to be, um, like it needs to be in dialogue with our tradition, with the community around us. And then it needs to be a dialogue with the future. Like, yeah. what is the hope that we believe is is true in Scripture and I in, in our faith? And then that those three things begin to shape one another. And I don't know. I think that's the way that we build a lens for holding on to a faith in the midst of the injustice that we see around us. Yeah. I think that when we see injustice, I think that we as a people hold on to our faith as our also our morality. Mm-hmm. We as a people hold on to our faith as our morality. And I'm not sure if those Mm. two should coexist so closely. I think that they do. I just don't know if we have the right, like you call it, lens to sort out when it's morality and faith. And Mm. I don't know, does that make sense? I don't don't know. Explain what you mean by morality versus faith. Okay, so when I was reading this article, um, there's a quote here. He said, he came to the question whether personal morality really mattered mm. as he moved toward a focus on justice. Mm. I saw other changes. His language got saltier, laced with what the Bible calls unwholesome words. He felt it necessary language to confront injustice. 
right? So we have this morality and we have our faith. And as we see injustice, we feel as if the Bible is giving us the, the right to apply justice or apply uh, mm. or to chase after justice because it gives us that mm. uh, that key or the ability or the permission to face it and do something about it when the Bible is clearly saying, no, let God give justice. Mm. And you step back and have love and empathy. And so I think that's where our morality of I that is wrong. Those people are doing something wrong and mm. I have to stop that mm-hmm. or I have to speak out about it. And then not only do I speak mm. out about it, but I'm going to tell you this uh, verse that's probably taken out of context mm-hmm. that I'm going to take to justify the way I feel, my actions, yes. as it opposed, as it like conforms with the morality. So we lose our faith and go into morality arguments. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I think that this is maybe, this is something that we really easily forget. And it's like, you just named it so beautifully, which is that in, and, and he names it in the article, but the means and the ends in Christianity are the same. And you can't say the ends justify the means in Christianity. Like that never works. Because that gives mm-hmm. up that gives up the whole thing that Jesus is here for, which is how and how we do something and how we live and how we bring about whatever this work that Jesus is doing is. It's not just the ends of it, it's the means. The cross is at the center of our faith because that's how Jesus does his work, nonviolently, self-sacrificially, mutually. And so it's what you're naming, which is like if the means, which is I think mutual self-sacrificial love are not a part of the story and the part of the way that we live, then we've kind of lost the whole game. Yeah, I think so. Last words. Last words. Well, here's what I would say. I have, I really do think this is what I have like almost dedicated my life to, which is how do you decouple the hurtful, painful, broken pieces of, of Christian theology from the Jesus story. And my encouragement would to anybody who has left their faith because of those things, um, would you would you engage in community? Would you begin to wrestle? Because I think the Jesus story is so much bigger than American Christianity and American evangelicalism. And I don't, I'm not trying to throw all of American evangelicalism under the bus. I come from that tradition. There's things about it I love, things that I'm so challenged and, and, and enriched by. But would you... Um, find creative space to engage differently. The church and Christianity is so much bigger. There's expressions all around the world that offer something beautiful to the conversation that we're having. Well said. We need a bumper sticker that says, Jesus is bigger. That's right. We say so. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, Jesus is bigger, and he's bigger than this next subject, although maybe he is looking down upon the earth right now going, I told you so. (laughs) This morning, uh, an article about Governor Gavin Newsom, governor of California, telling us that fires are fueled by climate change. Hmm. And this is a subject that we have been hearing many politicians talk about, many young uh, women and men talk about. We know that when, even when they go to the big uh, 
conferences in Sweden and in Europe. They're always asking, uh, how did you get here? And here's a map and here's, much, here's how much carbon you put into the air. And here's the effect that you had just to get here to talk about climate change. Mm. And it's no secret, California is on fire. Mm -hmm. Oregon is on fire. Utah is even on fire. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the fires we're seeing. We're seeing incredibly crazy weather. Mm -hmm. And I have friends on one side going, this is crazy, and just enjoying the snow on September 8th in Utah. And I have uh, other friends who decided they wanted to drive to the sand dunes uh, near uh, dumbass, dumb not dumbass, it's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where they filmed the Star Wars, uh, Return of the Jedi. And, oh, and yes. Uh, California sand dunes. I have friends going to the sand dunes who are just kind of as far away as they can be from the fires without getting burned, but as close as they can to get pictures and just saying, we're in the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And while that seems like a joke, this is no joke. Mm -hmm. There was a picture from NASA this morning where the entire western seaboard was covered and obscured by smoke. You could see it from a million miles away. Yeah. yeah. This is serious. It is serious. It, it, in the photos, we have a friend who's a photojournalist in San Francisco for the San Francisco Chronicle. She posted some photos that she was taking for you know, the, for the newspaper, which then Obama shared, which was crazy. Um, so you might actually have seen them because President Obama shared her photos. But the like the red, the red sunscape that covered the city, uh, it was like I mean, it was a little unnerving. It's like it's, it's like to see a, just a whole different hue cast over San Francisco and Oregon had a similar kind of effect, and even Utah had a not as deeply red. But as we were driving home last night, it was like noticeably red. Which is what you named Utah just had hurricane level winds that took out our power for ours was out for three days, but friends just down the street from us still don't have power. So you're like five days, six days of no power, no understanding of when it's coming back. Um, and that's like small for us, it's kind of a small cost compared to people who are experiencing the fires. But it's what you're saying is real. Like this is real. It's very real. The question I have is. I'm surprised that we have people staring this in the face, standing next to a winery that's burning, taking pictures of a red sun over the San Francisco bridge. Mm -hmm. And how can we call it anything else than what it is? And what will it take for us to change our ways and change mm -hmm. our thinking? Mm -hmm. That is such a good question. I wrestle with this one a lot. Like why, how, when did climate change become so political? Yes. How did it get wrapped up into like our ideologies and then what is it going to take for it to become something more real and visceral and on the ground that's no longer divided by political allegiances that feels like a thing that we're actually participating in and how do you also make it feel real when this event doesn't seem to make it feel real for people you know what i mean like I think for so long, climate change always felt like it's this thing that's happening way in the future, and so that makes it hard to like get your mind around. But it's like you're seeing it with the fire, you're seeing it with weather change, and if that still doesn't make it real, like what helps us understand it, get our hands on it, and actually do something about it? Yeah, you know, it's a good question. I'm not very optimistic about this because, you know, in California, I would say there are a lot of dumb people. I'll I'll sit, uh, <laughs> I'll sit in Trader Joe's and. 
there'll be three or four people parked by me with their windows rolled up and their mm. car on, and they'll be waiting for their mom or dad to, or whoever to come back out. And they're out there for 35 minutes uh, waiting with their car, just mm -hmm. spitting poisonous gases into the air. Mm -hmm. So I think the problem starts with us as a human race not being able to see past the end of our noses until mm. it personally affects us. I hope that these fires are personally affecting most of us. I know here in California, we woke up to an eerie glow because mm. of the fires in central and northern California, and it looked like golden hour all day. The sun was orange, mm -hmm. the sky wasn't completely red, but it was torched. And it is eerie. It's this kind of apocalyptic mm -hmm. uh, sense. Now, to answer to your question, from what I think, I think climate change became politicized because of politicians. And this is kind of a, a mm. problem, right? Mm -hmm. Not that it becomes a problem because of politicians, but hey, politicians are trying to do what's right, some of them, or they'll get onto some kind of cause because they want to bring attention to it. Mm -hmm. Once they bring attention to it, it becomes politicized. Mm -hmm. About 10 years ago, Al Gore brought the inconvenient truth to life about climate change. And then a few years ago, I got to kind of hang out with Al Gore and do uh, a little piece called Melting Ice and a big conglomerate episodic release in VR called This is Climate Change. Hmm. We're going to post the uh, the link in the description to one of the pieces called Fire, where we went to the Santa Maria Fire, which was right near San Francisco, and filmed just the horrifying effects of, I don't know, 4,000 homes being mm. destroyed. The sky was torched. We got an Airbnb where uh, the power was out, but the guy's like, you can just go in because nobody's in this area. It was raining ash. You could feel the heat and see the mm. fire. We wore masks the entire time. And long answer to the short question, when did it start being political? I think it's when politicians actually bring it to light, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's actually probably really true, which is that it's like unavoidable that when a politician gets involved in the issue, it, the issue gets wrapped up into the political machine and it becomes like disembodied and it gets disconnected from community and all this like funding goes into it, all this marketing goes into it and all this ideology gets connected to it. I think you're probably really right about that. And so the question is like, how do you get it away from politics and back into the everyday and into the local? Yeah, I think that's the question. How do we take back climate change? And I think uh, more people need to believe in it. My brother, I love him. He is um, one of my idols in my life. He's mm. worked for the Department of Energy for years and years, has all kinds of security clearance. He'll probably say, you can't, you can't talk about me on this podcast. But when we talk about climate change, he talks about it in a very different way. You know, he's a scientist, he's a geologist, mm -hmm. and he'll say something like, um, yes, those happened, the earth is warmer this year, but do we know the cause of that? Is the cause humans? And to me, that feels crazy to think that we don't have some hand in this. Mm -hmm. We spit out like 90 million metric tons of carbon emissions every day into the atmosphere. And mm -hmm. all you got to do is Google science experiment with carbon dioxide. You can do your own experiment and mm -hmm. see what happens in an environment when you introduce more carbon dioxide and sunlight. You, you can see the effects of that. Mm -hmm. So I think, how do we take back this political? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that is the question. I don't know if we're going to take it back. 
Yeah, I, I like that question, though. I like that question in terms of just all the things that we're talking about. Like, even the conversation about Jesus, the conversation about climate change. But every it's almost like every conversation we've ever had, this could be the thing, the theme that's underneath, underneath it, which is like, how do you take this back from politics, from ideology, and make it something that is human again, that happens, like, between you and I, that happens in community, that happens in a neighborhood, where it's not something we're debating and arguing over. It's something that we are trying to empathetically and mutually come together to deal with, like as a people, but not as like parties. That feels like maybe the, it's funny, I, 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 I've never thought about that as the theme of the show, but it feels like one of the themes of the show is like, how do you take something back that has been, that has been so politicized that now it's part of an ideological machine that divides us as opposed to unifying us to solve a problem? Yeah, those are often our conversations, often our arguments, and often when we leave going, we either don't know or here are the things you can do. Yeah, yeah, totally. Whether you like Bernie Sanders or not, he always said, hey, this is your campaign. Every time I saw some kind of email from him, he would say something like, we are not taking money from super PACs. We're trying to make this the people's race. So if you want me to be president, it's up to you. And I thought that was a very grand thought and I appreciated that idea. Mm. Whether I appreciated Bernie Sanders or not, the idea that he wanted us to take it back, I thought mm. was a very valid and valiant point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As far as climate change is concerned, there are a few things that I've learned, you know, to reduce, refuse, reuse, rot, and recycle. Some people call it the five R's, right? We want to refuse items that are single-use plastic. We want to watch where we throw our trash, watch watch what we do with it. We want to reduce our carbon footprint. That means turn your car off once in a while. Mm -hmm. Notice when you're running the air conditioning. Try not to run the AC. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have less fires. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have less gender reveal parties that cause (laughs) 40,000 acres to burn, right? Reuse. If you're going to have a straw, take it with you. Mm-hmm. Reuse that plastic straw 10 times before you put it in a turtle's nose, right? Mm-hmm. Or a fish's gut. Mm-hmm. Um, rot. This is a hard one for me. Uh, when, you know, rot means like, uh, you know, have some mm-hmm. kind of compost pile or take mm-hmm. your coffee grounds and, and uh, create a soil that you mm-hmm. can uh, reuse that soil and not just throw what there's your stuff yeah. away. And then, of course, recycle, which is a really big subject we can talk about later. So We should talk about that um, one later. If you, the rot one is a good one. This is something that Tor and I learned, like when we, We've we've had compost in each home that we've lived in, but this is we live in a first home that we bought. You know, we bought it in 2018, and so we've had a, like developing compost pile. But the first like six months that we were living here, if you have this, a lot of cities do this. We have like the city's waste bin, and they'll actually let you compost in the city's waste bin. So you can use like vegetable scraps, coffee grounds. You can actually put in the city's waste bin, and then they'll take it to their compost. And so like, there's some ways to like almost like intro level begin to participate in in the rot, which, which I do think is kind of mm-hmm. like the harder one. Cause it's like, there's a, it feels like there's a barrier to entry to how do you participate in this? And it smells. It, it can smell. It can smell. I mean, I've been to a big uh, methane plant and I've seen some compost piles that are massive, filmed them as well. Yeah. They stink. I have a gag reflex. I'm not going to lie. You can always put your compost in the freezer. You have a little compost pot, put it in the freezer, dump it in there, doesn't smell, and then take it outside when you're cleaning one day and dump it in the city's waste bin. That's what we did for a long time when we lived in a, like a smaller apartment. Oh, you're serious? Yeah, oh yeah. Because we, we didn't have like an outside place to put the compost, and it was similar, we didn't want to put the, we had like one of those compost bins that like supposedly hides the smell, but it doesn't do that good of a job, and so we'd put it in the freezer, 
at just the very bottom of the freezer, dump all of our compost in there. And then once a month or whatever, or once a week, take it outside, let it thaw for a second, dump it in the city's compost bin, and then, you know, repeat the process. Well, don't forget to compost, rot, reuse, recycle, Mm -hmm. reduce. Mm -hmm. Don't forget that Jesus's message is one of empathy and love. (laughs) And put out your damn fires. That's right. That ends our episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. By the way, we have an Instagram, Mm -hmm. Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, all lowercase. Find quotes from the show and interesting stuff. Come back again next week if you like our conversations and be sure to have your own. Please hit subscribe and consider throwing us a review. If you want to know more about Almost Dr. Johnny Morrison, go to johnnyis.com or about myself, you can find a little about me at christiansurge.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.